I want you to think about something this morning. Many of you have children, right? Many of you have. When you decided to have children, you didn't know really anything about what your children would be like. You didn't know what to expect. Maybe you'd have a boy, maybe you'd have a girl, maybe your kid would be tall like your Uncle Mike or short like your mama. You didn't know, right? Uh, There is one thing, one thing that you did know, though, and you knew this for certain. Your kid would be a little sinner. (laughs) You knew that. You knew that. How did you know that? You knew because you were a little sinner, and everyone you knew except for Jesus was a sinner. But you also knew because of something we studied last week. We, we were looking through this, and I'm just going to kind of read through some of this. This is out of Romans 3. But then, are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks, that's everybody, that they are all under sin. Right? There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. It gets worse. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asses under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know whatever the law says. It says to those who are under the law. That what? Every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. All right. I read the whole thing to tell you that all you had to do was read that, and you would have known that you were going to have a little sinner because no one is righteous. No one. All people have become a disaster. That's what they've become. All people are sinners. Everyone who is born is born into sin in a sinful, fallen world. If you have a child, the one thing you know is if they live long enough, they're going to sin. And yet, good people all over the world who know this truth still believe that having children is a good thing. In fact, it's a beautiful thing. It's something we rightly celebrate. Psalm 127.3. By the way, there are Bibles in front of you. Uh, If you want to take one of those home with you, that's our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible at home, or if you haven't been reading it and you think a new one will help you read it more, we want you to read the Bible. We want you to read the Bible. So those are for you. You can also use them during the service. It'll be up here. Use your phone, whatever you want to do. Um, Psalm 127.3, behold, children are a heritage, a gift from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Some of you have little kids right now are like, "Mm, reward? I don't know what I did to deserve this reward. Um, (laughs) That's what the Bible says, right? The little children were brought to him. That's Jesus, right? That he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Psalm 139, 13 to 14. For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your your works and that my soul knows very well. So children, they're good. Now, That settles the issue of whether you should have children or not, right? They're really, really good. They're really special, and they're important. And we believe that we're going to teach them right from wrong, and hopefully you do. But we don't know that they will actually obey what we say. In fact, the one thing we do know is that at least sometimes they won't. At least sometimes they won't. And yet, we don't blame parents 
for having children. Even though they knew before their children were born that their children would suffer and bring suffering and all that kind of stuff, we don't blame them. The answer is, of course, make babies. Make babies. It's right. It's good for a husband and wife to have children. I bring this up, though, for an important reason. And we're going to get to that reason later. But it has to do with God's choice to make us. So keep that in your mind as we kind of go through this. We've been studying the book of Romans together. Hopefully most of you are caught up on our study. Uh, These messages are not one-offs. It helps a lot if you keep up with all the sermons because one thing sort of leads into another. They're all connected. And so uh, if you haven't been doing that before you come back next week, maybe go back. It's all on YouTube. It's all on the app. It's it's everywhere. You can go find it uh, and watch that stuff. The Bible is truth, and that means that it can be difficult to understand. Some truths are very difficult to understand. And so we have to study. We have to study. And that's what we're doing in the book of Romans. We're studying. These sermons are not me kind of giving you uh, life application a lot or anything like that. We're studying the Bible, and it's hard work. So let's get into it. Because I have not been able to get through what I wanted to get through for weeks now. And I probably won't this week, but uh, we reviewed chapter 8 quite a bit of it, sort of with a mindset of what's happening in 9. And then we went back last week, and we did 1 through 8 in sort of this whirlwind uh, recap of the entire book of Romans up to this point. And now we're going to get into chapter 9. And there are differences of opinion, to say the least, on how to understand this chapter, okay? With real Christ-following, Jesus-loving believers, there are differences of opinion on how to understand this chapter. Some of those differences are significant, but none of them should cause disunity among the brothers and sisters in Christ, just so I'm telling you that up front. Throughout the book of Romans, as we've been studying, what we've been studying is something we call soteriology. Soteriology. Now you're wondering, what is soteriology? Well, I have a definition for you, and there it is. Soteriology is a branch of theology, and theology is just the study of God, okay? So what do we know about God? That's theology. Dealing with the study of salvation. So soteriology is the study of salvation. It's a branch of theology that studies salvation. It comes from the Greek soterion, which means salvation, also, also related, related to soter or savior. Soteriology relates to several other branches of theology in that it asks, and these are the important questions, who is saved, by whom, from what and by what means. So as we've gone through here, you can see that Romans is very soteriological as a book. Who is saved? The first thing it's doing is walking through the Jews and the Gentiles. Are the, are the Gentiles really saved? Are the Jews saved? How does that work? By whom? By Jesus Christ, right? He works through the thing. The Jews who rejected the Messiah, they were not saved because they refused to accept Jesus Christ. So that w- that's the by whom that we see in Romans. From what? And he goes in, Romans 6, Romans 7. From sin, you were slaves to sin. You were dead in your trespasses, right? That's what you're saved from to Jesus. By what means? Now, there's where we get to where some Christians get sideways with each other in their understanding. By what means are we saved? And that's what we're going to talk about in Romans 9 quite a bit. By what means? Well, there are two means that we have to talk about. The first one, pretty much everybody agrees with. And the second one, 
there's quite a bit of difference of opinion on. The first one is by grace through faith. By grace through faith. I'm going to give you a list of things, just a few things, that basically all Christ followers love Jesus, understand the Bible, agree with. There may be some people out there who don't, but they would be on, uh, in a very odd place. Almost, most of Christendom, or at least Protestant Christendom, believes these things. The first one is that salvation is by grace through faith and not of works. Okay? This is a fundamental belief. This is what got Martin Luther very worked up back in the, the day when he nailed stuff to the church door. Don't do that. Our door is glass. If you have something, just send me an email. Um, but he nailed this onto, onto the church door. He was worked up about the fact that we are saved by grace. By grace, it's not about works, it's about grace. The entire Reformation was, was built up in the fact that you had a church at the time that, that was who Christians were, that was getting more and more and more into works, and particularly some pretty rotten stuff like if you give enough money, you, you, you can pay for your sins, literally pay for your sins that way. I've thought about that as a way to build a new building. Um, I feel like we can make a lot. Um, but we're not doing that because it's evil. Right? And Martin Luther saw that. This was a very important part of salvation. So, so believers believe this, and there's a simple reason. It's in the Bible. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. you got nothing to say for yourself. You cannot come to God and, and say, this is, the, this is the thing that a lot of people talk about. Do you think you'll go to heaven? If you ask somebody, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? If they believe there's a heaven... And they'll usually be like, yeah, probably. Some people won't say that. Some people are more honest. But yeah, I think I'll go. And you'll say, why do you think you'd go? And they'll say something like, because I feel like I'm a good person or I feel like I'm better than most people. Like I do good stuff. And Ephesians 2, 8, 9 comes and puts the big buzzer on that. It says, nope, you cannot be saved by works. No, no, no. And here's the thing, like every other religion in the world, this is what they do. It's works, works, works. Every other religion in the world. You can go to India and you can see some Hindu people there. And I don't know if you've ever seen any of this, but there are people who will like stand on one leg for 10 years because they're trying to become more holy. Or they, they do this crazy stuff like, that like harming themselves or doing this really difficult stuff because they think if they do enough, they will ascend to a higher place, right? It's about the people who do, those ones who get, the whole like karma, reincarnation, all that nonsense. It's all about what I do, quid pro quo. I do good, I get something back. And what the Lord has said very clearly all through the book of Romans, you could never do that. You cannot get there that way. You cannot get there that way. Works don't work. Christians believe that. Protestant Christians, that across the board, we believe that about how we are saved, okay? by, by what means we are saved. Second thing we all agree with, God is sovereign, okay? Sovereign, all-powerful, in charge of everything. God is sovereign, and he knows everything, past, present, and future. All believers believe that. Again, probably because it's in the Bible, Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. All is under God, okay? He has authority over everyone, everyone. 
For we are his, this is the next verse after Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, so it kind of fits in well. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What has to happen for him to do that? He has to know the future, right? If he is going to prepare works for us, that is, my handwriting is fantastic. I got spanked when I was a kid because I brought home report card after report card with unsatisfactory on my handwriting. And that's why I never, I said, forget it. I'm not going to do it then if you're going to spank me. I already took the punishment. Might as well have the bad handwriting. So that's the way that's gone. No, I'm kidding. Never thought about it that way. I'm not that rebellious. I just am not good at handwriting, okay? Um, Some of you were like, you spanked for that? Yeah, we got spanked back in the day, kids. That's how it worked. That's why I have a job. All right. Anyway, I don't want to get into it. All right. All right. All right. All right. Here we go. For my thoughts, this is God, my thoughts, God's thoughts, are not your thoughts. That's your thoughts. They're not your thoughts, okay? Nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than my thoughts than your thoughts. Okay, so just picture this. You have thoughts. Sometimes you think those thoughts are pretty good thoughts. And he's saying, My thoughts are so much higher than your thoughts that it's like the heavens to the earth. It's not, you can't measure them. Your ways, your thoughts, they are not smart. They're not God smart, okay? He's he's telling you, listen, he is in control. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. He knows everything. And then we get into what we had in the last chapter, Romans 8, 29. For whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's Jesus, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. These words here, which we will see in the scripture, require knowledge. They require knowledge of everything. You can't foreknow, which means to know, And you can't predestine unless you know everything that's ever happened that ever will happen. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, right? He's the one who was and is and is to come. This is very clear. So that God is sovereign and knows everything past, present, and future is believed by Christians all over the world, all the time, no problem, okay? But this is where we're going to get into an issue as we go through it. What does that mean? What does it mean to us? What does it mean to salvation? All right. Third, no one comes to Jesus Christ unless the Father calls him or her. All Christians believe this, okay? And I'm specifically, for those of you familiar with the nomenclature, I'm I'm talking about Calvinists and Arminians, the things that they agree on, okay? Calvinists say one thing, Arminians say something different. If you've watched all the sermons, I've I've, I've explained some of that to you. But that's who I'm mostly talking about that understand Romans 9 differently. But all of them believe these things. They believe these things for sure, and because the Scripture says it. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. No one comes to the Lord unless the Father draws them. We know that's true. But see, earlier in John, John 1, 9, talking about Jesus, that was the true light, that's Jesus, which gives light to every man coming into the world. So now there's this sort of back and forth. Everybody says... Everybody agrees no one comes unless God draws them. Then the question is going to come down between sort of these people that understand differently. Does God draw everyone 
and you have the ability to reject his drawing or is God's draw irresistible? Oh, I'm getting a call. Oh, I didn't turn my thing off. Oh! Now I feel bad about saying stuff to my dad last week. <clears throat> wow, that's embarrassing. All right, we got to get down to it. So there's this idea, there's this, there's this issue that we're going to come to. There's an issue we're going to come to, and the, and the question is, God knows everything. We're going to get there in a second. But the idea is, does God make you be a Christian? Because he compel you. Or do you choose to be a Christian? So that's, that's where we're going to get into some things in Romans 9. But let me just be clear about something so that you understand something. None of these things should cause disunity. And none of them question whether you can be saved. If we have confessed with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believed in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved, period. You don't have to worry about how it happens at the end of the day. You don't have to know that to be saved. When you're like, I don't know if God made me saved or if I chose to be saved, but I chose him. Doesn't matter in terms of that you're, if, you, if you've confessed through your mouth the Lord Jesus and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you're saved, period. Now we can go into the theology about how that worked because it helps us understand God better. But being saved is a thing that's done. If you do those things, it's done. Now, into chapter nine, in context, with all the stuff we've done over the last weeks, one through eight and eight and blah, and we're getting into nine, and here we go. Here we go. And I've got like 10 minutes. We'll get through chapter nine in 10 minutes, like the most difficult chapter in the Bible. Here we go. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, okay? My countrymen according to the flesh. Who are these people? These are the Jewish people. Okay? These are the Jewish people that Paul is concerned about. And he says, I wish that I could be accursed. Of course, literally the verse before, he talks about how nothing can separate us from Christ. So he knows he can't be accursed. But he's saying, man, I am feeling like this. I am feeling like this for these Jewish people. I'm feeling like this. And then he talks about who they are. Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption. What adoption? Well, in chapter 8, we talked about adoption, right? We, we have the adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. That's the adoption of saints, Christ followers, people who have been saved. That's the adoption. But there's another adoption, too. There's the adoption which, is, which comes through Abraham, okay? That God chose a particular people to do things through them. And they have that adoption, Okay? The glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promise of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. All great things. They have all this stuff going for them. They got the, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law. They had the scripture, the service of God. They were the ones who ran the show in the temple. And the promises, the promises that came not just to them, but to the whole world, came through them, whom are the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, etc., and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. All of those things belong to Jewish people. That is part of their heritage. That is part of their heritage. Christ came who is over all, the eternally blessed God, amen. That's some great stuff that Jewish people have. And he is bummed out, bummed out enough that he would even want to be a curse on Christ himself so that his brothers and sisters who were Jews could be saved. In fact, if we go to the beginning of chapter 10, you're going to see a mirror here from 9 and 10 where Paul gets back to it. Verse 10, 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for, for Israel is that they may be saved. So he gets, so he starts out nine, uh, coming out of eight, and talking about all the blood. I mean, eight is just like Christians, here's promises, all things work together for good, nothing except from God's love, whatever. And then the next thing goes, oh man, 
but for my brothers, the Jews. And then he walks through this thing, once again, approaching the Jew-Gentile dilemma. Because the Jews are like, and why aren't they all saved? That's the obvious question. Because don't they have the promise? And so what does he say? We keep going. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. Now, why does he say this? Romans 9, 6. He says this because the Jewish people are thinking to themselves, and they have come up believing that by virtue of their birth, by virtue of who their dad and their granddad and so on, they could name who these people were, they would be saved. That that's what the promises meant. That that was what it was about, to be an Israelite, that they automatically get saved. So when he talks about, well, what do you mean you would rather be a Christian Christ to have these people saved? Aren't they saved? Aren't they already saved? They're Jewish. They're Jewish men and women. And so he has to say, it's not as if the word of God has taken no effect. And this is where he gets into it. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Okay, what does that mean? Of Israel, in other words, from from the uh, loins, I was going to say, which, you know, whatever. From Israel, Jacob, right? Those who Jacob had, his lineage, they may be Israelites, they may have that adoption, but they're not all Israel. Israel, now he's separating two things. Promise, right, versus body. There are those from the body of Israel who are not children according to the promise, They're not, nor are they all children because they're the seed, right? Again, body of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. So he he makes the first first separation. He's trying to explain to him. Listen, you're, you're relying on this very technical promise that because Abraham, because you came from Abraham, that that means that you're saved. But actually God has all the time been making separations, right? Abraham had more than one son. He had Ishmael before he had Isaac, but Ishmael, he had five more after, after Sarah died. But none of them were of the promise, only Isaac. So God is making these distinctions by his plan from the beginning. So he's trying to help these Jews understand the point. The point is, is that just because you're an Israelite, just because now you have descended this line, doesn't mean you're this thing. Any more than being a child of Abraham by itself meant that you were part of the promise, because only in Isaac, only in Isaac were they called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. The promise, okay. What's the promise? The promise is the gospel. Okay? The promise is that the Messiah would come and you could be saved. The promise was that those who believe will be saved. That's the promise. That's the promise that came through Abraham. And, and how does it work? For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. That's what he tells Abraham. Now what, what has to happen? What does Sarah do? Does anybody remember? She laughs. She's old. Like really old. Anybody 90 in this thinking about having a kid right now? (laughs) Women. No? I didn't think so. Neither was she. And that's exactly what she did. She laughed just like you guys did. Because what? What? But what did Abraham do? He believed. He believed the promise. That belief that happens right here, this belief 
That is where the seed goes. Okay, that is, that is the children of Abraham are children of belief. Isaac's going to be born. Jacob's going to be born. We'll get to that in a second. Down, down, down we go. But the children are children of belief. And he's making this very, very clear. And not only this, but when Rebecca had also conceived, Rebecca, this is Isaac's wife, had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, also known as, oh, no, he's, he's Isaac. I was going to say Jacob is Israel. For the children not yet being born or having done any good or evil. Now this is where people are going to say, oh, okay, this is where I go sideways. The children not yet being born nor having done any good or evil that the purpose of God, according to election, choice, God's choice, God's will, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, what? It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And we all go, what? 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 Hang on. God hated, we're cool with the Jacob loved thing. We're all good with that. God hated Esau before he was born, before he had done anything good or bad. God hated him. We'll see you next week. No, I'm kidding. We're going to get into it. We're going to get into it. <laughs> oh. It's difficult, right? He works with the promise, and then he says this thing that just kind of, I think, sends everybody sort of backwards. There's two things that you need to understand. This is where we start to have a division in understanding this chapter, okay? For the Calvinistic person, this is the person who believes that your salvation is something compelled by God. He draws you like, like a net of fish is drawn in. He draws you like that. And the word is the same word used for that. So there's a reason to believe that that's what it means, that he chooses and draws certain people. Okay, that's the way they look at it. They're gonna interpret this, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, more personally, that we're talking about Jacob the person and Esau the person, right? So that God has made a, a choice between these two people, that Jacob is going to be God's, he loves him, and that Esau is not, okay? That's the way that Calvinists read it. Now, I'm going to give you the other side. The way that Arminians would read this, or, or at least non-hardcore Calvinists would read this, is that these two things are not people but nations, okay? That we are talking about Edom and Israel, which also is what Jacob was called, okay? And so that what God's talking about is, is staying in line with what he has said about the promise this whole time, right? Think about what he's done. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, he's, he's working this idea of this promise down. The people, and who's he talking about? The Jewish people, who do they come from? And so people who don't go the, the, way, the personal way on this actually do this. They go, these are the nations that he's talking about. And he's making the same point that he made earlier that Ishmael and the other five uh, sons of Abraham weren't called, but rather it was Isaac, right? And in the same way, Isaac has these two sons. Esau wasn't called, but Jacob was. The word hate here, biblically, is not, when I say I hate something, right? And there's not a lot of things I hate. Oregon ducks, that's it. That's the only, no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Love the ducks, they're great. Um, 
When you say you hate something, you mean you really, really dislike it. It's more than that. Okay? But biblically, that's not necessarily what the word means. In fact, it can just mean an election of one over the other or a priority of one over the other. For instance, you may have seen this verse before, Luke, or these verses, Luke 14, 25 to 27. Now, great multitudes went with him. Him is Jesus, okay, just so we're on the same page. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Wow, that's rough. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, do you think that what Jesus is saying, considering everything else he said, what he means is you have to horrifically dislike your wife and your mother and your children and those people? No. Cannot be the case. That's what he means. But what, what's clear from this is that he's saying you have to choose, make an election of Christ over all those things, including your own life. Everything, father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, in his own life also. You have to have all those things have to be below Christ. If there's an election to be made, it's him over all those things, even your own life. In the same way, you can look at this verse that we just read and say, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, and what are we saying? An election is being made. An election is being made. Jacob is chosen, Esau is not. And it had nothing to do with how good or bad they were. Nothing to do with how good, bad they were. And both, whether you see it as nations or whether you see it as individuals, that applies in both cases. Jacob, Israel was not chosen because Jacob was such a good guy. It was done before he was born. Okay? Edom was not chosen for destruction. They, were not, they ended up not being great folks, okay? the people that came from Esau. Was not, because Esau was good or bad before he was born. This was the election of God. He decided through whom the promise would come. All right, let's, 11, 18, goodness gracious. I gotta stop singing so many songs, gotta get into the Bible. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? That's the question, okay? Here's the question that he, that he thinks that is gonna be asked or that the Holy Spirit has inspired him to, to realize is gonna be asked. Is there unrighteousness with God? He answers it, certainly not. Heck No. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So that it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Amen. So it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. This goes back to how are you saved? By grace through faith, not of works. It's not your will or your running that's gotten you there. And so this... Particularly this is where we get into the, the word wills for those who will listen online and not watch something. It's, it's right there where we have this sort of break between the people who sort of see soteriology one way and see it another way. The question is, did you come to the Lord by your will or his? And the uh, Calvinist says, his and only his. And the Arminian says, Yes. I came by his will and my will. I came by his will and my will. And so we have this issue here where the Calvinists go, wait a second, it's not of him who wills. It's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs. We all agree with this. It's not about works. So then the question is, what, what is the place of a person in that? Well, let's, let's keep moving. 
We'll go another few minutes. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. So he hardened Pharaoh. And he tells us why. Why? That he may show his power in Pharaoh. That his name may be declared in all the earth. Now, do we still know who Pharaoh is? Do we still know what God did in the ten plagues and the, and the Red Sea? And all? Yeah, we do. He definitely did that. He definitely declared his power. But then we go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a second. He hardens Pharaoh? Well, let's give God a break for a second because before he ever hardens Pharaoh, we have this. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, this is Exodus 8.15, there was relief. He hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. And then again, Exodus 8.32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. Then God starts hardening And then even later, and when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So it wasn't like God just hardened some really nice guy's heart to show his power through him. A, what do we know? There are no really nice guys. There are no really nice girls either, just so we can be (laughs) equality, right? (laughs) Pharaoh was a sinner. And Pharaoh was already hardened in his heart. But yes, God came in and hardened his heart so that his will might be done. So that his will might be done. And then people ask a question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Man, this is a really good one. And I can't, there's no way I'm getting it done in three minutes. So let's leave it right here with why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? So we can get back to it. The answer, by the way, is no one resists his will. So then the question, why does he still find fault, has to have an answer. Now, of course, you have the ability to read next, the next line and see that the answer is, hey, who do you think you are? But we'll get to that. And we'll get to the real answer, Lord willing, next week. The real answer on how this stuff works. I will continue to give you both sides of this. And then I will try to, the best I can, lay out for you the way that I see this issue in soteriology, the way that I see this issue of what's your involvement in your own salvation? What does it mean to be predestined? What does it mean that God has foreknowledge? How does that affect you? And what does it mean for your life? Because there's no point in going through theological exercises to do brain gymnastics at the end of the day to sort of understand something a little better if it means nothing to your life. But at the end of the day, let me explain something to you very clearly. It means everything to your life that you continue to evangelize because God is calling people. It means everything to your life that you continue to seek him and actually do some of this hard work because that's how we come to know him more and more and more. It means everything to your life if you're not in him that you come to know him today, not tomorrow, Now, I'm going to think about that. I'm going to go home and ponder. If the Lord is drawing you, give up surrender. I had to. It was the most glorious surrender I've ever made. He has put me through so much that has helped me to trust him so much. He has been so faithful. And he can do that for you too. If you're struggling this week, if you're struggling with sin, difficulty, health problems, whatever it is, please remember The one thing that we all agree with, that God knows everything. And that means what? 
that he knows whether he can keep his promises and he wouldn't have made them if he wasn't gonna keep them. So please rest in your trust for God this week.